0: We're finishing this whole conversation that we've uh, been doing for months, um, not really finishing, but anyways, uh, about the questions that Jesus asks in the Gospels, and taking a look and saying, how might we look at these questions in in light of what Jesus wanted to communicate, but also in light of, of how they might hit us today in their own unique ways. So um, this last one's kind of fun and interesting, uh, a little bit rhetorical, but not fully, um, and we'll we'll explain why in just a little bit. Um, but it starts with, with a story uh, that my father-in-law told me not too long ago. Uh, so he's a motorcycle rider, a motorcyclist. He's a biker. Bethany's dad's a biker. Um, so anyways, he, he's always uh, enjoyed having motorcycles or riding motorcycles. Hasn't always had one. But for years, he had a, a Yamaha. And then a couple of years ago, he finally got a Harley, which was a uh, very exciting for him. Um, but, but I, I remember... Um, him telling us that, that when he had his Yamaha and he would be like at a stoplight and there'd be like a guy on a Harley across the street, You just kind of like look and acknowledge, you know, like the norm. But when he got his Harley, like there's like a Harley wave. It's like it's like the left hand kind of goes goes down, you know, out with a couple fingers, you know, just as you're, as you're driving by, you just kind of put it out. And apparently it's like a, you know, it's it's the chopper wave. It's, it's the, the wave that acknowledges you 're one of us it's nice to see you here um, that's sort of a, of a thing right and so so he said you know he said he never got that before before the uh, the Harley um, but but it you know it was uh, nice to be one of them right I remember the same experience in my own life when I became a bus driver uh, for a school uh, a couple years ago when I was driving buses for Aspira and uh, and all of a sudden you notice all these other bus drivers you know and and as you're driving there's just this like like, you know, a couple fingers come up from the right hand as you're driving along, like, hey, how are you doing? You know, hey, I'm one of you, right? Feels, feels good to be with your people, you know? Um, this principle goes much beyond kind of the little, the little moments of, uh, of, of seeing someone with whom we have a connection. And there's certainly nothing, nothing wrong with that. But Jesus wants to teach us about love and about how robust love is. And sometimes we're going to get into this about how this this word is so overspoken that we lose track of it completely. But but Jesus was a boundary crossing. He was what what we call an iconoclast. So he challenged regular thinking, regular assumptions of the day. And in Luke 6, uh, we get this really deep, uh, deep dive into some of his teachings. And it's about how people relate to one another that are similar or not so similar from them. OK, and so here's what's been happening up till this point in Luke 6. We're going to start in Luke six thirty two in just a second. But up until this point, um, it's kind of a summation. This is Luke's way of in Matthew. We have the Sermon on the Mount, which is three chapters of just like packed full of kingdom of God teaching what what it, what the calling of Jesus looks like in real life. Um, it's so we call it the Sermon on the Mount. In in the book of Luke, uh, it's often called the Sermon on the Plain because he's walking through these these grain fields and then he stops and, and he teaches. And it's a lot of the sum, the summaries of the same stuff or similar concepts. And so Jesus has been teaching them about what it looks like to be faithful and to live generously. And um and he he gets into this point about about enemies and and begins to talk. Um, about what it looks like to relate to people who are either against you or highly different from you or all these things. And you can just imagine, this in the midst of this challenge to kind of love your enemies, um, the calling is so high, and Jesus is unpacking what this upside-down kingdom looks like and what radical love actually entails. And you can imagine, in the midst of this, as he's telling the crowd, that he's probably getting some skeptical looks. He's probably getting some raised eyebrows, right? Of like, are you serious? Are you serious? What, what you're what you're talking about when when you're saying you know uh, blessed are you when people exclude and insult you and reject you because you're trying to follow me you know uh, rejoice because the your reward is great in heaven woe to those who are rich and and overly comfortable like are you serious about this like this this sounds this sounds really really hard to live out. And, and you can just imagine the question, is Jesus serious about all of this? And so, so what happens is Luke, in Luke 6, right after Jesus has talked about um, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, he gives these examples. If someone turns one cheek, turn the other, or hits you on one cheek, turn the other if they slap you. If someone takes your coat don't withhold your shirt from them also. Now, there's all sorts of interesting context that I could go into about that and about how it actually is reclaiming human dignity, not just lying down and becoming a doormat for people. Um, but it's a, it's this creative way to non-violently change the world. Not responding evil for evil is what Paul talks about later. So you get this whole picture, and you can imagine some inquisitive looks. And then Jesus, it's it's almost like, He wants to explain and double back on some things. So here's what he says in Luke 6.32 to help explain what this is all about. And go ahead and, Melanie, you can put this uh, this scripture up on the screen so that people can see it along with us as we we just uh, hit it for just one moment. And here's what he says. He says, listen, if you love those who love you. So he's talking about how hard it is to love one's enemies, to love the others out there. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend uh, to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful." And the wicked, be merciful, just as your father is merciful. So Jesus repeats these questions over and over and over. You can you can take the scripture down, thanks, Melanie. Um, Jesus repeats these three questions, and they're really kind of synonymous. They're they're parallel questions. They don't really hit at something different. He just pulls out. The first one is, if you love those who love you, what credit is that? The second one is if you do good to those who do good to you. So he's, he's keeping, making sure that you can't turn love into like a feeling, right? He's like, if you do good to those who just do, do good to you, what credit is that? You know, what, what benefit, what, what special thing? And so, and so he keeps going and the real question, the point of these questions that he keeps repeating, what's the big question underneath all of it for us today? And, and the big question that we, that we sit with when we look at a passage like this is how does being a Jesus follower set us apart from just nice, expected behavior? Because nice, expected behavior is all around us. So what does it mean? What, what difference does Jesus actually make in our daily interactions? And is it different from other people who might feel the same way as us but just not be Jesus followers? Is there anything that actually sets us apart as people of God, as, as people living in the kingdom? Um in a story like this in a teaching like this Jesus is attempting to hammer home a central point and that is if you are living in the kingdom your love will go beyond basic decency right it'll be above that it'll be above basic tribalism and that will be different then most of the rest of the world functions. Um, it, it's going to be eyebrow-raising love as people are listening to this story and being like, yo, Jesus, are you serious? Like enemies, people have done real bad things to us. What do you mean love? And, and, and Jesus says, listen, yes, there's all sorts of ways of doing things that just match what everybody else does. But if you want to follow me, you're going to have to take additional steps. It's hard. Now, interesting here, um, the actual word that's used for um, credit, if you love those who love you, what credit is that? It, he repeats this word three times. If, if uh, you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that? And if you lend to those who you expect repayment from, what credit is that? The word there is charis, the Greek word, which means grace. So so literally, Jesus, Jesus is saying, what grace is that to you? Like, how, how is that living in grace? There's this understanding of saying that if you, if you truly understand what God has done for you, the experience of grace will be so great that you will be living in that grace. You'll be changed by that grace. And so therefore, when you treat other people in however you treat them, we expect that that grace is going to spill out from you. So, so you can't just do this kind of on your own power. Obedience for the hard stuff of discipleship requires a work of grace in us, and a work of grace from us. Okay? Uh, so, so notice that all of this is building up to say, hey, listen, Jesus is talking about actions, not just feelings. That's why he says do good and lend. He's giving these active examples, right? And, and that love that is not sacrificial is nothing really noteworthy, nothing inherently Christ-like. Okay? So, so the difference is then that we are asking ourselves is what difference does jesus make in our interactions with the toughest people to love all right and so so what we're uh what we're being challenged by this morning is um is jesus saying is jesus saying listen the calling what i what i do with my there's my marker the calling is to go beyond the law of Reciprocation. See if I spell it right there. Yeah. Okay, so here's what the law of reciprocation says. The law of reciprocation, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, um, even if you don't know it by name. The law of reciprocation says that I am justified in my behavior as long as it, toward you, as long as it matches your behavior toward me, right? So the law of reciprocation, I am justified in my behavior toward you as long as it matches your behavior toward me, right? And so so if you say something nasty about me, I am justified in saying something nasty about you. If you mistreat me, I am justified. There is good reason for me to treat you in the exact same way. If, um, if there's a group of people that talk badly about a group of people that I am a part of, then I am justified in doing that thing toward them. You know, um, it it happens all over the place, right? Like, it's okay for, I I use my example because I'm a big Eagles fan for football. You know, it's okay for Eagles fans to, to hate Cowboys fans because we know Cowboys fans hate us, right? So it's justified. It's been like that forever and for always. And this is literally played out by countries and by people groups for generations and centuries. Now, by the way, this isn't an actual thing. I just made this up, but it's true, okay? So I don't know if there's actually a name of anything called the law of reciprocation, but it's a real thing in our lives. Just think about it. Think about how much more justified you feel if you know that someone's behavior toward you has been not great, and so therefore your behavior toward them, you don't feel a lot of guilt about doing the same thing. Well, they yelled at me first. They started it. Um, they're just, they, this is how they feel. So sorry, I guess I'm just going to say exactly how I feel too. There's this, there's this world that gets created based on a, a, a basic understanding that if somebody wrongs us and it's just, it's classic eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth stuff, it's blow for blow. This is the way the world works and we justify it all the time in little ways, even in our thinking, we justify it. So... What I want to do is I want to encourage you in some real simple ways to embrace three truths today, okay, that will help us move beyond the law of, recipro- of, of reciprocation, okay, help us move beyond this and into a more Christ-like love. Um, and uh, I am going to trust that my wife is listening right now upstairs and that she can find the Eugene Peterson book that is probably sitting somewhere in the living room and uh, send a little offspring to deliver that to me down here because I'd on like it. to use a quote from it. Thanks. <laughs> okay, so um, so here's, here's what's going on. Um, and I want someone, Melanie or somebody, can type, can type these truths um, in the chat box so that you have them to, to rely on. Um, but the first truth to embrace is quite simple. Thank you, baby doll. Thanks, thanks. Um, so the first truth to embrace is really simple and it's this. It's okay to admit people are hard to love. Okay? So if we want to move in to to moving beyond loving the people that love us easily and just living this basic reciprocity with our whole lives, if we want to move into agape, self-sacrificing love, then the first truth to embrace is that it's okay to admit that people are hard to love. The real work of love is very difficult. When we act like it's not, we're not understanding love really well at all. Um, you know, we, we settle for this kind of costless love that's really easy to embrace. Much of you grew up in the church, and you grew up in in fairly traditional churches that sang some of the classic hymns, and one of those classic hymns goes, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Right? It's this reflection of the amazing self-sacrificial love Um and, and we love that. We, we receive it. And then Jesus tells us that that same love is what ought to characterize our outward posture toward the whole world. And, and in, often in the contemporary Western church, what we do is we've kind of adapted the chorus in our own way. And we, and, and we go like, convenient love is so easy. I love my neighbor when it works for me. right? This is kind of what we do. And so when it's convenient for us, When it's convenient for us, we love well. But when we're hurt, or when we don't see it toward us, then we just kind of refuse. But we're justified because they're doing the same thing. And Jesus says, what grace is that? How is that grace? How does that make you any different from the world? We can make progress if we simply start to admit that love is hard on all sides. Uh, Eugene Peterson, um, this book was, was published after his death. Um, it's called As Kingfishers Catch Fire, and it's excerpts from some of his sermons. And I just want to encourage you, this is a commentary he's given on, on the book of 1 John and how obsessed John seems to be with the concept of love. Here's what he says. Friends, we are immersed in great and marvelous realities. Creation, salvation, resurrection... But when we come up dripping out of the waters of baptism and look around, we observe to our surprise that the community of the baptized is made up of people just like us. Unfinished, immature, neurotic, stumbling, singing out of tune much of the time, forgetful and boorish. Is it credible that God would put all these matters of eternal significance into the hands of such as we? Many, having taken a good look at what they see, shake their heads and think not. But this is the perpetual difficulty of living a life of love in the community of the beloved. We had better get used to it. The thing I find so impressive here is how unrelenting John is in his insistence on love, even though he knows how often we will fail at it. He knows as well as any of us that it's impossible to bring it off satisfactorily. But he still insists. He will not water it down. Chapter 4, verse 21, the commandment we have from him is this, those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. Every sentence in this elaborate pastoral exposition of the five-word command in Leviticus to love our neighbor comes out more or less the same. God loves you. Christ shows you how love works. Now love. Love, 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 love. Just do it. Amen. We love better when we admit that it's not easy. All of a sudden, we move into a space in our own spirits and in our own heads that says, I'm willing to do the tough work of caring about other people, even when there's a disconnect, even when there's some sort of barrier, even when there's been a wrong committed, even when there's an attitude issue. I commit to the hard work of love. So we just have to admit, first of all, that it's tough. All right, here's the second truth to embrace, okay? And this is connected to the first one. But the second truth to embrace is that we don't have to agree with people to practice active love. Even in the church. We do not have to agree with people to practice active love. Okay? Uh, in our in our yard circles uh, that we've been doing for four weeks now. Um, this is our, our last week of them coming up, and uh, you can still join. They're all open groups, so you can join anytime. Uh, we've been journeying through the entire book of Philippians, reading a chapter a week, and it's been really kind of fun to take Scripture in chunks and just kind of sit with it and say, where does this speak to my own discipleship? But in Philippians 2, there's this passage um, that we looked at, and, and um, I, as we were sitting there, Cause someone else was reading it out loud. It might have been Ian. Um, it, it Something triggered in me that was a, a new way of seeing some of these things. And you can put it up, um, Melanie, on the, uh, on the screen, the Philippians 2 passage. Here's what it says. This is verses 1 to 4. Therefore, if any of you have any encouragement, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, than hu- rather, in humility, consider others above yourselves, not looking only to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, that idea of, of make my joy complete by being, in, by being like-minded, some versions will say by agreeing with one another or by being in agreement or by being unified, Right. Often we think that the only way that that can happen is by getting the, the agreement to take place, okay, uh, on whatever issue it is that we might feel that there's a disconnect, all right? But if you look closely, what Paul is asking them to commit to is about the character in which they have those conversations, Instead of saying, agree on every issue, what he's saying is make my joy complete by having the same love and not being selfish and not living in conceit, but in humility, practicing all of this stuff. That's how we make, or that's how the church would make Paul's joy complete right? So the deepest form of agreement and like-mindedness is about the posture that we hold of being unselfish and other-oriented in the world, and specifically among the church with each other, okay? That's the primary thing that Paul is asking them to agree on. Later on, he does talk about the issues, but interestingly, he he doesn't even bring up the specific issues sometimes. But he he asks them to learn how to work it out, and he talks about the character by which they do that. (laughs) The issues, I believe— are secondary to the heart and character of Jesus that is displayed as we work out difficult challenges. And then later he he talks about this in, in Philippians two, um, or just a, a few verses later, he says, do nothing without grumbling or arguing so that you might become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Okay. What an image. If, if and when we embrace love of others, which is so much of what Paul's talking about, how we relate to one another in Philippians. If and when we do that, if we embrace love of others without reluctance, without complaint, but willingly, he says we shine like stars among the generations around us, like stars in the sky. Can you imagine that for, for just a minute, up and against what most people outside of Christian faith think about Christians. Just take a moment. You find someone on the street that's not a Christ follower, and and you ask them, you know, tell me what you think about Christians. And they pause a minute, and they respond, let me tell you, they shine like bright stars in the dark sky of our society. Some of you are, are laughing right now because it seems so far-fetched. But what if our love for others was that robust? What if, what if we went so far beyond loving those that just love us or, or doing good to those who just do good to us? What if, what if we went so far beyond that our reputation was impossible to ignore, that the world around us said, I don't even agree with them on a bunch of things, but my gosh, do they love people well. What if that was the image? What a vision. What if our, uh, our, our prophetic critique, which we are called to give of the world and its values often, and our calls to justice and compassion and peace and morality, and, and a life that honors what God honors, what if those were so full of love and understanding and so clearly willing to cross boundaries to serve, so absolutely committed to forgiveness and the well-being of others, that that's what people's perspective is of us. What if your enemies thought, boy, they shine like a star in the world? <laughs> is it possible? With Jesus, I believe it is. Um, a practical tip here on this one before we move to the final. The practical tip is sometimes this means knowing when debate is unhelpful and um, compassion is better. There are times. That doesn't mean that we that we just stay silent all the time when when there's um, different perspectives. But it does mean that sometimes we know when debate is unhelpful and, and compassion is more important in the moment. Sometimes it means that we place the relationship above the thing that disconnects. And so we choose to place the relationship above it in how we view another person. And sometimes we trust that it is valuable to speak truth in love. It's about the wisdom. We need that wisdom to be able to move there. So um, first truth to embrace is... Uh, that the it's okay to admit that people are hard to love. The second truth to embrace is that we don't have to agree with people to practice active love. And the third truth to embrace is this. If forgiveness plays a central role in our lives, it will change everything. If forgiveness plays a central role in our lives, it will change everything. This is going back to the, the choice of the word that Jesus uses, is that what grace is that if you only love those who love you? What grace is it? Uh, Matthew writes the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, when Jesus is giving us the, the Lord's Prayer, and he says, Forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. Right? Right? Forgive us, Lord. Forgiveness, our experience of God's forgiveness that happens every day, ongoing. Jesus understood it must and is intended to be linked to a, 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 a posture of forgiveness toward other people in our lives. Corey Tenboom was uh, a Dutch Christian watchmaker uh, who helped hide and rescue an incredible number of Jews in. during the Holocaust in her home with her family. She was later captured and uh, imprisoned and severely mistreated in uh, the Ravensbrook concentration camp along with her sister uh, who died there. And so years later, Corrie ten Boom, this passionate Jesus follower, was traveling around and preaching of God's love, even after all that she had endured. And she came face to face with one of her captors. I want you to hear the depth of what God can do in the life of a disciple who is fully surrendered to Jesus. She wrote this in 1972 at the age of 80. She died in 1983. And uh, it's a long story. This is kind of how we're going to end today. But let me tell you, it's worthwhile. So I just, I, I invite you to just lean in to this story from this incredible writer and disciple of Jesus. Here's what she says. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeat a Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth that they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land And I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where our forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence In silence they collected their wraps, in silence they left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. There were never questions after a talk in—oh, sorry. Um, One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, that huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile— of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. The shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out, a fine message, Fraulein, how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly about forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands of women? But I remembered him— and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death, simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours, as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For i had to do it i knew that the message that god forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us if you do not forgive men their trespasses jesus says neither will your father in heaven forgive your trespasses i knew it not only as a command of god but as a daily experience (laughs) since the end of the war i had a home in holland for victims of nazi brutality Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were also able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that, too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arms, sprang into our joined hands. And this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And having thus learned to forgive in this hardest of situations, I never again had difficulty in forgiving. (laughs) I wish I could say it. I wish I could say that the merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from then on, but they didn't. Here's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age. It's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw on them fresh from God each day. Maybe I'm glad it's that way, for every time I go to him he teaches me something else. I recall the time 15 years ago when some Christian friends whom I loved and trusted did something which hurt me. You would have thought that having forgiven a Nazi guard, this would have been child's play. It wasn't. For weeks, I seethed inside. But at last, I asked God to work his miracle in me, and again, it happened. First, the cold-blooded decision, then the flood of joy and peace. I had forgiven my friends. I was restored to my father. Then why was I suddenly awake in the middle of the night, hashing over the whole affair again? My friends, I thought, people I loved. If it had been strangers, I wouldn't have minded so. I sat up and switched on the light. Father, I thought it was all forgiven. Please help me do it. But the next night I woke up again. They talked so sweetly, too, never a hint of what they were planning. Father, I cried in alarm, help me. His help came in the form of a kindly Lutheran pastor to whom I confessed my failure after two sleepless weeks. Up in that church tower, he said, nodding in the window, is a bell which is rung by pulling on a rope. But you know what? After the sexton lets go of that rope, the bell keeps on swinging. First ding, then dong, slower and slower, until a final dong, and it stops. I believe the same is true of forgiveness. When we forgive someone, we take our hand off the rope But if we've been tugging at our grievances for a long time, we mustn't be surprised if the old angry thoughts keep coming for a while. They're just the ding-dongs of the old bell slowing down. And so it proved to be. There were midnight reverberations for a couple of dings when the subject came up in my conversation. But the force, which was my willingness in the matter, had gone out of them. They came less and less, and at last stopped altogether." And so I discovered another secret of forgiveness, that we can trust God not only above our emotions but also above our thoughts. And still he had more to teach me even in this single episode, because many years later in 1970, an American with whom I had shared the ding-dong principle came to visit me in Holland and met the people involved. Aren't those the friends who let you down? He asked as he left my apartment. Yes, I said a little smugly. You can see, it's all forgiven. By you, yes, he said. But what about them? Have they accepted your forgiveness? There's nothing to forgive, they say. They deny it ever happened. But I can prove it, I went eagerly to my desk. I have it in black and white. I saved all their letters, and I can show you where... Cory. My friend slipped his arm through mine and gently closed the drawer. Aren't you the one whose sins are at the bottom of the sea? And are the sins of your friends etched in black and white? For an anguishing moment, I could not find my voice. Lord Jesus, I whispered at last, who takes all my sins away, forgive me for preserving all these years the evidence against others. Give me grace to burn all the blacks and whites as a sweet-smelling sacrifice to your glory. I did not go to sleep that night until I had gone through my desk and pulled out those letters curling now with age, and fed them all into my little coal-burning grate. As the flames leaped and glowed, so did my heart. Forgive us our trespasses, Jesus taught us to pray, as we forgive those who trespass against us. In the ashes of those letters, I was seeing yet another facet of his mercy. What more would he teach me about forgiveness in the days ahead? I didn't know, but tonight's was good news enough. Note the witness of a story like that. That's the difference that Jesus makes. Note the internal transformation and freedom that Corey Ten Boom experienced. That's the difference that Jesus makes. She is our ancestry. That kind of love, that's our legacy. It's so hard, but grace is what opens the door. If it can happen in a circumstance like that, and we can't demand that of others, of even ourselves, but we can open ourselves up to Jesus in a way that makes that sort of forgiveness possible. If it can happen like that, it can happen with us. Love can extend further than you could ever believe because it's not yours. It's Christ's love that compels us. So let's together trust Jesus to help us obey this passage. Let's continue the path beyond tribalism, beyond contempt, beyond rationalization of unkindness, beyond the law of reciprocation. Let's keep it this simple. Let's be merciful, just as our Father is merciful. I know it's hard, but that's what we do. We do hard things. Amen.